Good morning, good day after Thanksgiving morning, and welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Hopefully today you get to just hang around and relax and do whatever you feel like. Eat leftovers and just kind of indulge yourself. And now on with the show. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sound. Higher and higher, filling it with sound. Filling it with sound. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. My guest is Judith Polich. She's a former lawyer, environmentalist, and wetlands advocate and an advisor to New Mexico State Parks on climate change resilience and mitigation. She holds a master's degree in environmental studies and environmental education from the University of Wisconsin. She writes a climate change column for the Albuquerque Journal and is the author of Return of the Children of Light. And her new book that we'll be talking about is Why Can't We Be More Like Trees? The Ancient Masters of Cooperation, Kindness, and Healing, which details the new and emerging narratives that will help reframe and unravel the deeper causes of the climate crisis and will also help co-create a new and more conscious world. So Judith, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you for having me on your program. To begin with, how did you become so passionate about climate issues and trees, and and where did it all begin? Well, I think it began a long time ago when I was young. I grew up on a farm in northern Wisconsin, and I used to spend a lot of time just hanging out as a young person in the woods, sitting under trees, and just being calm and still in nature. And it was kind of a solitary existence. So that was my community. The natural world when I was still quite young was just an important part of my life. So I'd say it it started there before I developed a sense of separation from it. Yeah, that's interesting how uh, it often works that way with children. Start off connected and our culture has this kind of Midas touch 
of disconnecting <laughs> us, not only from the natural world, but from ourselves as well. Yeah. And I think that for me, it's been a struggle to bring those two worlds back together for most of my life. And, you know, at some point I was able to blend those realities and to revalidate those initial experiences. So how did you get into the whole climate issue? Well, my first career was as an environmentalist in the early environmental period in the 70s. And then later I went to law school. And of course, that was a divergent path, a different path. And when I retired, I realized I wanted to devote my energies to climate change and to other pursuits like that. And so obviously, climate change is in front of us. And, you know, it just demanded my attention. Let's put it that way. I'm an avid reader of various science publications and whatnot. And so I realized that one of the things my legal background gave me was the ability to synthesize lots of information and to put it in a format that people could understand. So using the skills that I had developed, I went back to doing what I could about climate change, personally, as well as hoping to have, in some ways, to influence other people's decisions. So when did you become aware that our climate was actually in existential crisis? You know, I think I was slow to it as well as many of us. I mean, basically, we weren't paying attention to what we knew 30 years ago, or we assumed there'd be a solution to it that could be mandated. And, you know, now, of course, we're 20 years behind <laughs> any real progress that we need to make. So there's going to be a lot more difficulty and suffering in terms of dealing with the problem. We just didn't act fast enough. And I was the same. I had read some about climate change, of course, but it wasn't just in the forefront of my consciousness at that time. Yeah, that seems to be the way it's worked for me and for many of the people around me. Is We just didn't realize that it was as serious as it really was. It, it just wasn't sinking in. So the title of your book asks, why can't we be more like trees? And obviously, there are lots of ways that we're not like trees. But could you tell us, right. <laughs> tell us about the ways that we are like trees, or at least used to be? Sure. Sure. <laughs> and also need to be if we're going to survive? Well, when I started reading about some of the new research on trees maybe five or so years ago, I was pretty surprised. They have these you know, modern technologies where they can actually determine what's happening underground. We only see the top, right? We see the soil level. We don't see anything below. We don't understand the interaction that's happening between tree roots and trees and fungi. And these new technologies that were reported by people like Susan Simone, who was probably one of the first forestry researchers to talk about this, made me understand that there's a community of life down there. It isn't just a tree. It's a whole interactive ecosystem that is exchanging information. It's exchanging food. It's acting like a functional community, caring for all of its members. And I thought, well, that's not just an interesting metaphor, 
it's a reality within the plant community that we just didn't understand. And so it was really scientifically based. And my book is, of course, scientifically referenced throughout. But when we began to understand that forced communities, especially established forests, interact in ways that we didn't understand. They seem to have some communication, some language. They seem to show some type of intelligence. They express what we would call kindness toward other species by sharing food with them. And it was pretty mind-boggling, frankly. And I thought, well, this is something I want to keep exploring, and I want to kind of get a better understanding of how the plant community acts in reality versus how humans and animals act. And why do we think so differently and so individualistically rather than more as a community? Yeah. On that point, could you talk about how we diverged from nature and and talk about what you refer to as the cognitive revolution? Yeah, sure. Um, Basically, you know, plants and animals, two distinct categories back through our evolutionary history. Animals, because they don't photosynthesize, we don't create our own food, we have to rely on plants or other animals for our existence, our subsistence. And so we developed predatory behaviors that are very different than in other parts of nature like plants. And over time, we developed these different brain structures, differentiating us from other species. And eventually, we humans developed higher brain functions, cognitive functions, that in many ways shut us off further from nature. That when the cognitive revolution occurred, like maybe, what, 20, 50,000 years ago, We don't know exactly what caused it, but suddenly our brains were functioning quite differently than they were previous to that time. And what is quite fascinating about that is with that came this huge expanse in our understandings and capabilities. And some of those were positive, but some of them served to disconnect us further from nature and from our source. So it's a very complicated, complex journey, and no one understands really what caused that leap in human evolution some 40, 50,000 years ago. But obviously, it changed our understanding of ourselves. We, we felt ourselves to be separate and superior from the rest of the world, rest of nature. And, you know, beyond that, it's history, what happens at that point. And it's, not really understood what led to that massive change. Could you talk about the perspective of that we've never really left the mythological Garden of Eden that this planet really is, and that we just really became seduced and deluded by our ability to think abstractly? Yes, I mean, I certainly our ability to think abstractly, to mythologize in a different way than before we were if I understand correctly what is understood about our, what I call prehistory, we were much connected to and felt ourselves to be immersed in nature, a part of nature, not separate from. And when that sense of separation arose, and with it the idea that we were dominant and superior to everything else, 
we develop different mythologies that set us further apart from nature and allowed for the development of the kind of social structures we have now, which are based more on considering nature as a commodity rather than anything that we're part of. And I think it's pretty well understood that originally we were much more animistic in our thinking. In other words, connected to a web of something larger. When we let go of that and became more, I guess, linear (laughs) in our thinking, it allowed us to, in many ways, develop the way we have, but also it came as a great loss, a loss of our deeper connection with everything else. We became very dissociated, diseased, and disillusioned, I say, from everything else, from everything else that we're a part of. Right. There are practical applications and advantages to being able to think abstractly, but we completely lost ourselves in our own, you could say, our own abstract creations of our perspective of what reality is. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, so that led to this further externalization. And, you know, in some ways, the scientific revolution was a part of that, but not causative in that it taught us to break everything down to simple parts, you know, and reductionism, those kinds of ways of thinking. Useful mechanisms to have, but not as a total way to view reality. And that's what we've done. Yeah. After you break things down, you have to put them back together again. That's pretty hard sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. With climate change right now, we have developed these complex we're the source of these complex problems that we don't have the functional brain capacity to understand or deal with. Our brains are not designed to deal with the kind of complexity that is a part of the multitude of problems that our actions have created on this planet. You're referring to our egoic mental capacity. Our egoic mental capacity, or just look at any aspect of climate change. It's incredibly complicated. We don't have the mental functioning to really understand it. With computer assistance, we can begin to understand parts of it, but to really understand the whole, maybe AI will help us in the long run, but we've created a big mess and we don't know how to deal with it. But animals and the plant world, they know how to live in harmony with the complexity of the universe and don't need to quote unquote, figure it out in any abstract way like we seem to think we have to? Well, yes, but at this point, we've created a circumstance that affects all species on this planet. And no matter what happens, the Earth will survive and recreate life. But if we can avoid the next extinction, even if it's not a complete extinction, if we can avoid the extinction of many species, then we've got to do everything we can to try. And we have to use all of our skills, all of our understanding to try to make that happen. There's a general tone of optimism in your book, which I found a little surprising, considering the degree of the crisis that you clearly lay out. And at one point in the book, you say that there's good news that all of the destruction and problems we've created are born out of old mental constructs, which we can and need to deconstruct. But you go on to say that that deconstruction needs to happen on an individual, collective, and 
mythic level? I think so. I mean, basically, I am an optimist, and it is not easy to be an optimist in today's world. But I'm partially an optimist because I love this planet so much, because I love everything that it gives us, because I love all of nature. And I can't not hope that we're going to be able to resolve this working together, at least resolve it in a way that life is sustainable for as many species as possible. So it comes from a deeper part of myself that I feel like despair doesn't get us anywhere. Despair just stops you in your tracks and you can't move, right? You can't do anything. So I would embrace some sense of hope that we're going to come through this. And one of the things I do talk about in my book is there's obviously a lot of great initiatives people all over the world are engaged in working on climate change. And there's some really exciting new technologies that are going to change the world enormously. And so I would say, do everything you can and embrace the fact that we can have a positive future and that it can be very transformative for all of us. Now, that may be overly optimistic, but I don't know how not to think that we can't get through this at some level. Well, I have to agree that anything is possible and that we seem to be wired in this strange way that we are kind of masters of self-destruction, and yet we also rise to the occasion in a crisis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in in a lot of ways, (laughs) like many of us, I had always hoped that we might be able to transform ourselves and our world our social systems in a way that didn't require such crisis and so much pain for so many. But it may be that that is the trajectory we're on now. So I have to hope that the outcome with all that suffering that's involved will put us on a better path. But one of the things that seems critical is that we really have to change our way of thinking and evaluating the rest of the world, including the plant world and, and the trees and the animals. And and that in addition to thinking that we're superior to and separate from all of that, that we have to find a way of revaluing not only life in those forms, but the basic intelligence and sentience of all other forms of life so that we can actually avail ourselves of the not-so-obvious wisdom that they have to offer us? Absolutely. So we have to start with not being so anthropomorphic, anthropocentric. We're not, and stop thinking ourselves as superior to everything else and that everything else is just a commodity for our use. I mean, those are very, very dangerous concepts. But we live in such a consumer culture, and hopefully we can change. But obviously... There is a lot of intelligence in nature. There is sentience throughout the natural kingdom. And we have to develop a sense of respect and understanding. I mean, I think we can learn a lot from indigenous wisdom in that regard because, you know, they never left the garden. And we can reconnect. And there are many pathways and many people who are doing that in individual, in other ways. Getting back to a sense of balance, a sense of deeper understanding, a new type of animism, if you will, that respects everything that's a part of life. Could you talk about the decentralized 
network intelligence of plants and trees versus our more brain-centered intelligence and the benefits and advantages of that kind of distributive way of being, and also how that can affect decision-making and problem-solving? Well, you know, it's really mind-boggling when you think about how a tree or a plant might communicate or express itself within its environment. And they don't have a brain or a nervous system like we do. And so there's divides in the scientific community as to whether they can have any form of intelligence or any sentience without a brain or a spinal cord. But people who have done fabulous research in this area, like, you know, plant neurobiologists and people like that, are telling us that they have a distributed form of intelligence, if we want to use the word intelligence, because that's a tricky term. And it wouldn't make any sense if their brain was in the top of the plant because we just cut it off, right? And they're vulnerable. So their network of communication, what we might think of as similar to our nervous system, is spread throughout the plant. And there are little places in the roots that are called meristems, which are thought to be a place where some of that exchange of information can occur. And it works similar to the way it works with humans, with chemical transmissions, electrical transmissions, like our brain work. So it's a, it's a dispersed intelligence, just like their senses are dispersed. Plants have lots of senses, including some that we don't have, but they're spread out through their leaves, through their roots, all over throughout their whole system, rather than just in their eyes or their ears or something like that as we're used to. And we're used to thinking of things the way it works for us. So that's something we've got to look at more broadly. All nature is not designed the way humans are designed. And that doesn't mean that they're less. They are equal and full in their own regard. And this kind of distributive form of intelligence is actually a very socially based form of intelligence. And human beings yeah. are social creatures that, that actually depend upon our ability to cooperate together. And yet, That's right. and yet we have actually gone in almost the opposite direction from the direction that we actually need to in order to survive. And at the same time, the plant world and, and many of the animal communities have not lost that innate intelligence. And yet we think of ourselves as being so intelligent, and yet we've become so incredibly dumb. <laughs> it does seem that way. I mean, but there's so much happening in so many levels. When you talk about dispersed intelligence, I mean, humans actually are using dispersed intelligence. We're right now communicating through the internet and through technologies. We're reaching out in ways that are in some ways dispersing our intelligence and have developed ways for us to gather together quickly in a way that is somewhat similar to what happens in a plant community when different parts respond to a stimulus and whatnot. So maybe we're evolving in that direction too, as well as devolving in other directions. But we're not grounding that at all. And so we're getting totally lost and overwhelmed by all of that information that's coming through in these ways that are actually happening so quickly that, that we can't even begin to integrate it all or understand the consequences of it all. 
yeah, we have to look for the places where there's breakthroughs, where there are examples that we might draw on. And I like to still think of us as an evolving species. <laughs> and you talked about human society and how community, in fact, social interaction is very important to us. I mean, there's a certain aspect on which we are ingrained with the idea of, you know, survival of the fittest and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we're kind of at a stage in our development where those kind of thoughts maybe aren't so useful anymore. We need to instead think of how we survive socially. And look at what happened in the pandemic. We really realized how much we need the social aspect of our culture and interaction with others. And if I were to look at some of the early thinking from Darwinism and whatnot at this point, I would look at survival not of the fittest, but survival of the most adaptable right now. And how can we develop the adaptability that we need to get through these major crises that are facing us as a human community and as a earth community? So how do we go about accomplishing that? One of the problems that we're facing is that almost all of our political leaders are actually continuing in this backward direction, it seems, or at least the overall body of our political system is at best in stasis, if not moving backwards. It's a very difficult time right now. And, you know, there's the bottom up <laughs> kind of activity that comes from the bottom from individuals, small groups, communities making larger I mean, coming from the bottom up is part of it. We can't look from the top down for everything because you're right, it's not happening at that level. Though I do think that a lot of the climate action activity at the United Nations, and we've got COP28 coming this month, it's very important. And I think they're slowly making headway, but it is slow. And one of the problems is that just looking at change from the level of policy at those large international levels is they may have the right idea, they may have the will, but they don't have the enforcement tools they need right now. So that's a problem. So we have to look also from movements rising up from the people to influence and bring about change at that larger level. And that is a challenging process, but we have to believe that it can be done. Yeah, and that connects to something you wrote about in the book about the emergent properties of collective, distributive, socially based intelligence. And what mm -hmm. you're talking about, this ground up swelling of activism mm -hmm. actually works on that principle. And you also say that that's a form of direct democracy. Yeah, or at least closer to a form of direct democracy. And I'm talking about the basic structure of distributive, socially based intelligence, not necessarily our ability to enact it or channel it in a sane and productive way. That essentially direct democracy is built into that system if we could kind of get out of our own way, so to and speak. And if we can tap into it. I just want to say, this may be an aside, but... I also feel that there's a larger force here that is available to help us. And I don't know quite how to conceptualize it. You can think of Gaia herself. And, you know, the corrective nature of what we learned about Gaia consciousness, if the earth is in balance, 
those larger forces are going to come into balance again. It may not be pretty, but we can learn to work with something beyond ourselves here, I believe. I don't know if I articulated that clearly, but you know, the basic concept of the guy hypothesis is that it's self-corrective in nature. Yeah. And of course, we don't see the big picture. So we don't really know how things are are unfolding or how they're going to unfold. And there's this notion that I've heard from different people that we, the human species, as well as the rest of life on the planet, are like dreams or part of the collective dream of Gaia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's the possibility for optimism that perhaps even if we can't trust ourselves, maybe we could trust her. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, doing everything we can to support that larger dream in our everyday activities. And it does seem to me, though, and I don't know if this is your perspective, that You know, we can drive electric cars or hybrids, we can recycle, we can do all these things, but it just doesn't seem enough in some ways. And I sometimes get a little frustrated about that because I see people not even wanting to do those things. (laughs) It does make it difficult. Well, actually, I'm getting frustrated because the mainstream narrative now, even acknowledging the climate crisis, is focused almost 100% on reducing and stopping emissions, and not really talking about the trillion tons of excess carbon in the atmosphere that we actually have to remove as soon Mm -hmm. as possible in order to at least mitigate some of the catastrophic effects that we're just beginning to see now. That even if we stopped, completely stopped all emissions right now, we're still on a fast track to climate catastrophe. To warming. And of course, we know it's going to be bad. The question is how bad, because no matter what we do now, we're not going to entirely mitigate it. We can only slow it down a little bit so that in the best case scenario, we can go through a few hundred years of really awful stuff, and then maybe it can get a little better after that. <laughs> I mean, that's not a that's not an exciting future, but we have to hold on to what hope we can. We can save a lot of species. We can set aside, you know, a third of the oceans, a third of our land bases. We can plant a lot of trees. We can do a lot of things that's going to make it better. Obviously, our ability to suck carbon out of the atmosphere is important, but that technology is really new and very expensive, and we're not there yet. So we're going to have certainly some rough decades ahead, a couple of rough centuries, even in the best case. So then your optimism is really a much broader-based, long-term optimism. I think so. And I think, I mean, uh, this term resilience is very overused right now, but I love the word. And I think we're learning new ways to be resilient. And part of that is, you know, the world's not going to be like the world I grew up in. And there's going to be increasing suffering, especially for those who are the most vulnerable. And so one part of resilience, I think, in this time we're in is how do we hold our hearts open in the midst of so much suffering that we're the causative factor of? Well, there's one of the lessons we could take from the plant world right there, because, you know, they're rooted in the ground, they can't move, and yet they just have to take whatever life dishes at them. And 
I don't see any evidence that they are in their own way shutting down their heart in the face of all of that. And in fact, they're they're actually continuing and probably expanding their altruistic and cooperative behavior towards other plants around them and the rest of the environment around them to help mitigate the effects of all of that. And if somehow or other we could find a little space in our little pea brains to integrate a broader perspective of what's possible and what's available to us in those ways. I agree. And that's another way in which I think of them as kind of a wonderful archetype for us in this transitional period we are, because they're just going to continue to take in sunlight and make food and subsistence for everybody else, no matter what, no matter what we do to them, as long as they're able to, as long as they have a leaf, as long as they're still alive, they're going to continue to give back. And so obviously, that's kind of a powerful metaphor for the rest of us. And one of the things I've been learning recently from reading your book and reading Monica Gagliano's Thus Spoke the Plant is that we have actually evolved. I mean, obviously we've evolved with plants, but the recognition that we've evolved with plants who have been here far longer than we have and are like our global parents and ancestors that literally provide everything we need to survive. And because we've evolved with them, the way that they have provided food for us and especially all the medicines that we can use mm -hmm. from them, it's like their distributive social intelligence is so broad and totally encompasses us. And it even affects our ability to conceive of and aid us in, in a kind of spiritual awakening because of the broadness of their innate intelligence that we are kind of like little infants in the midst of being taken care of by them, nurtured by them on a continual basis. And if somehow we could recognize that. Yeah, I mean, terrible little thoughtless infants in many ways. But yes, I mean, what if we could just grasp the holistic understanding that they seem to demonstrate. I mean, I think this is really about a shift of understanding in a broader consciousness. And again, it involves recognizing that we are part of a larger whole. And if you think about the planet that we live on and how without plants having led the way, there wouldn't have been soils, there wouldn't have been food, there wouldn't have been anything, nothing would, we'd have been just a rock floating through space. But plants evolved and gradually broke down soils and created life, created food for us and other species and terraform the planet that we live on. So it can be a wonderful sustaining place for all of us. So it could be this Garden of Eden that we have chosen to walk out of and ignore and slowly destroy or actually quickly destroy. Yes. And the next step of this interrelationship is to have you talk about the relationship between plant life and especially trees and the climate and also what is happening to trees around the world and the consequences of that and perhaps what we could do about that. Well, you know, we used to have a couple more trillion trees on the planet than we do now. And the good news is that there is a possibility to retree a lot of the planet, and that will help. I mean, of course, they take years to grow, but 
there are substantial movements all around the planet of major tree planting movements. So that's a big deal. Setting aside portions of the land and the oceans as non-developable is a big deal. And those things need to happen. We're also seeing, of course, massive fires all around the planet. And this year is going to be a particularly hard one in Australia, again, and places like that, because of what's happening with that El Nino effect. So we're going to have a lot of tree loss continually, and we need to continually be replanting and not just replanting trees. We know also that our grasslands hold an enormous amount of carbon. We need to figure out ways to get more carbon back into the earth and to hold it there. And regenerative agriculture is a big part of that. We have to obviously keep as many of our carbon sinks as we can and not cut down any more rainforests and keep our mangroves healthy and construct more of them if it's possible. But the plant community and the tree community is a big part of how we need to address climate change. And there are tons of initiatives, people working on that in basically every part of the planet. But that isn't enough. We've got to obviously stop the use of fossil fuels. We've got to stop this massive level of consumption that we have and really change our mindset in a significant way. Near the end of the book, you describe a contractual partnership that we could create with the green plant world. That comes from being a lawyer. And also remembering in the plant community, we have this wonderful evidence of the way that trees exchange sugar for other things with the fungal community and this kind of contractual relationship that seems to exist in nature, which is just fabulous to think about, almost as if the fungal community has bargained with the trees. I'll bring you minerals and this, that, and the other, and you give me sugar. And hey, it's worked forever, right? So if we were to think more consciously about how we could work more deeply and fully with the natural community and what that bargain for exchange would be, they will give us all the sustenance they give us. And we, in exchange, will first try to reverse some of the awful effects of climate change that we've brought about by planting trees, by stopping fossil fuels, by doing all of those things. And basically get it into our heads, our mindsets, that we need to work with nature, that we need to work together, that we're in this together, and that that's how we return to the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. And using the term contractual partnership is a very, not only lawyeristic kind of thing, but it's also very <laughs> anthropomorphic. It is. <laughs> because when you when you look at what's going on under the ground, it doesn't seem to me that they're negotiating they're actually directly interacting and their innate intelligence understands that they need to do that for their- Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I mean, I think the jury's out on to what degree there's some uh, conscious manipulation going on down there in terms of what they're finding, because this is all relatively new research within what the last 20, 30 years or so. And obviously, it needs to be studied a lot more. So yes, I mean, it is a little contrived to use the term contractual. But I think that it goes to the idea of there's an exchange. And it's true of all life. There's an exchange. And that's how we rebalance ourselves by participating in an exchange, even in more shamanic cultures or indigenous cultures. I mean, 
if a hunter is going to take a life, there's going to be an exchange of some energy that goes with that. So I don't know if it's correct to call it contractual, but there's a respect and an exchange that does occur. And I think we're probably putting too much emphasis on the term contractual and sure. maybe maybe using the term bargaining is a gentler term for it. But I still think that's very anthropomorphic and that all of these species have evolved together in an interconnected and interdependent way to naturally share because it was to their you know mutual benefit to do that. And basically, I think the difference is they're not dissociated from their environment, and we are. So the idea of rebalancing that I'm talking about is that we take on, we resume our responsibility as caretakers of the earth for the benefit of all beings. And that's what the contract's really about. Yeah, now that makes a lot of sense. And that's a good way to put the anthropomorphic spin on this relationship. And we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. And if we're in a self-correction phase here, which I believe we are, both within the earth and within ourselves individually, it doesn't happen overnight. It is a process. And as we move and embrace a more holistic understanding, a broader understanding of what consciousness is, what intelligence is, and how we all are in this interactive environment together. And I am hopeful that over the long term, we can get it. And speaking of intelligence, again, you wrote a recent article about AI and mm -hmm. artificial intelligence and solving the climate crisis, where you say that you went to the source directly and asked, you know, the new chat GPT, how it could, <laughs> how it could be used to fight climate change. And it identified various things that we needed to address, like climate modeling and prediction, renewable energy, energy efficiency, smart grids, energy management, emissions, monitoring and control, and smart buildings and smart cities, all these kind of things. And that ChatGPT also cautioned that artificial intelligence should be developed in an ethical and responsible manner to avoid unintended consequences to ensure that artificial intelligence technologies contribute positively to climate action. And that kind of demonstrated a bit more self-awareness than I would have normally given it credit for. But at the end of it, you then asked ChatGPT, if we could actually use artificial intelligence with all its potential in a sane and responsible way, and will we have the collective will to act sanely and responsibly, and that chat GPT could not actually answer that question. Right. I mean, I don't know if you've played around with any of these programs, but they're very general, at least the level of which I am a user of them. But there are certain, obviously, if we just think of supercomputers and advanced computer technology, it's going to help us crunch numbers. It's going to help us figure out the best way to design a building for the maximum solar gain and the least heat loss and things like that. So we can understand that, right? But it's a young, a very young technology. And unfortunately, there's going to be lots of 
problems because it has capabilities to create massive chaos and misinformation. And there's a lot of bad actors out there. So I think Chad's answer there was, it's an unknown. It's a risk, but it can, it is already helping with certain climate change applications just because it's advanced computer technology at this stage. And the big caveat is that it's human beings that are programming it. Yeah. And many of them don't have an enlightened stance at all. They're only looking at how to maximize profits. Look what happened with all the social media, of course, and why it has been so disastrous in so many ways. Yep, exactly. All technologies that we create are double-edged swords. They can rise as high as our highest aspirations and sink as low as our deluded and dissociative thinking and behavior. Absolutely. So that's certainly the challenge. And in any case, because these problems are so complex, they can add some help in terms of just the computational power and access that they have that individuals on their own can't muster anymore. We're still, our brains are still hunter-gatherer brains. <laughs> right. We're like children being given very powerful technology. It's kind of like teenagers being given you know, the keys to dad's hot rod and access to the uh, the liquor cabinet. Yeah, right. <laughs> we are certainly at an adolescent stage, that's for sure. And yet our technology is growing exponentially. It is. And uh, I don't know, there's a lot of different AI models out there now, and there's a lot of people developing chats, and they're not all as scrupulous and some are much more profit motivated. I like to hope that there'll be some kind of international regulation because the potential to do harm is so significant, you know, and there's a potential certainly that it could help, but I'd say the jury's out. But part of your optimistic perspective is, is you say that the arc of evolution tends toward goodness. Yeah, it is. And Christalis's work on the social suite that all humans carry, that we're basically cooperative, that we're motivated by goodness and kindness, and that that may be genetically coded, is something to remember. Because we may have lost our place a little bit, but maybe there's something innate within us that isn't going to go away. And that I'd like to hold on to the thought that perhaps genetically we are programmed to be kind and social animals and that genetically we are programmed to help others, that empathy might be something that is natural within us, as is biophilia, love of all life. And so, yeah, that's important. And that is a part of my optimism. That seems to be the arc of what I've been learning. Like I've recently did a couple of interviews with people about animal intelligence and the social mm -hmm and emotional intelligence of animals, which is actually very, very similar to that of the plant world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a kind of intelligence that we evolved with as a part of and have just lost in the process of, you know, discovering and implementing agriculture and industrialization and capitalism and, and things like that which have basically rewired our brain into very linear and selfishly motivated agendas. 
Yeah. And I do believe in neuroplasticity, the idea that we can rewire our brains differently too. (laughs) We don't have to be stuck in linear thinking as the only way to think and reductionism. Those are important cognitive skills, but we can, I hope, rewire our brains to be more holistic in our thinking and more ecologically based in our understanding. Right. And you write about what you call plant blindness, and that would take rewiring of our brain to change that. And that's something I think is actually beginning to happen. I think it is. And, you know, I think there's obviously this, we have this love affair with these little devices that we carry around with us all the time and that kids can't seem to put down. But if they have exposure to the outdoors, if they are allowed time to roam freely in nature, I think some of that natural, more holistic perspective can evolve. I mean, part of it is nature itself, spending time in nature can distress us and bring us back to a center. But we've got to get out of our homes and apartments and put down our iPhones and get out in nature and just experience what's there and let the stresses that we've accumulated fall and let our consciousness fall into a deeper place of deeper understanding, because nature will just do that for us if we can just get out there and be quiet. Yes, sort of letting nature rewire our brain or perhaps unwire the more recent deviations. So your website is cuttingyourcarbonfootprint.com. I write articles, many of which have been published in the Albuquerque Journal and other papers, and I'm looking at other places that will carry them. But they're articles that are based on what individuals can do to cut their carbon footprint, as well as, in some instances, some deeper understanding of what's happening with regarding our climate and our climate crisis. And they're readily accessible. Anybody can utilize those articles. There's about 40 of them on there right now. So what are, what are some of the newer things that are happening that are helping the situation? And you also wrote an article about Biden's... Um, oh, the uh, right, the Inflation Reduction Act. That's huge. I mean, that's the first big infusion of money in this culture to help with climate change. And there's all kinds of incentives within that legislation that will help individuals do things like pay for solar panels on their roofs, help buy electric cars and electric chargers, put in heat pumps in your house and things that help the individual homeowner to reduce their carbon footprint by electrifying and you know getting off of carbon. I live in the Southwest and a lot of people heat here with gas. <laughs> you know, it's a fossil fuel. And so heat pumps are a great way to reduce that. And they also are very effective for cooling. And with these uh, rebates and incentives that are part of Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, uh, right now, they're just kind of hitting the ground because it's been up to the states to figure out how they're going to implement them. So people can now be looking at for next year what they can do. Let's say if you want to put in an electric stove, you can pretty much get it paid for. So these are great incentives and they're not just for individuals. I mean, Inflation Reduction Act covers a lot of infrastructure improvements too that are leading us in the right direction in terms of climate change. But there's a lot of individual tax incentives and rebates that are going to hit the ground starting this next year. But a lot of people, including a lot of people around here, are complaining that 
all this electricity and, and electrification is still based on and being generated by fossil fuels? Well, that depends on your utilities, where you live. And over time, hopefully those utilities, depending on your state policies and, and kind of incentives that are made available to your utilities, they're going to be, should be generating more with solar and wind. Here in northern New Mexico, there's a utility company up in the northern part of the state. It's a utility cooperative, and they're almost 100% solar now. You have a lot of sun out there. We do, but this has been a gradual process because it takes a considerable investment, right, to convert. And so it's quite an exciting initiative. Yeah, here in Vermont, um, I don't know how things are going in those ways. Well, I would guess that our people who are putting in heat pumps, because I have friends in Maine who are doing that, and they're actually quite effective. And, you know, Vermont is going to have some solar, it's going to have wind, it's going to draw on hydrological power. And geothermal is also a huge thing that we need to invest massively in now, because there's all this heat under the ground, more than way more than we need to supply us with energy. But you know, a lot of these things are 5, 10, 20 years out, but we'll get there. And they're expensive. Well, it's going to take substantial investment on the part of the public and private sector. And if you pressure your utilities, of course, to do the conversions they need to make, over time, it will eliminate fossil fuels. Electric generation and automobile use are the two major things that those of us in the Western world where we use so much fossil fuel, those are the most two important things that we need to convert, our cars and how we heat our homes. Yeah. Other buildings. Yeah. And I'm feeling guilty because I'm literally burning trees to heat my house. That's not so bad because if you have a really high efficiency stove and, you know, there are standards on that. And one of my articles going way back deals with here, there's a lot of like open fireplaces that people have in their homes. If they just put a fireplace insert in there that meets the new standards, you can feel pretty good about burning wood because you're emitting very few emissions, like the equivalent of, you know, maybe one cigarette an hour or something compared to what some of those older stoves emit. So if you have a good, efficient wood stove, I don't think you need to feel too bad. Well, I have something kind of in the middle, maybe on the uh, the older range of the spectrum, something within my price range, which was actually free. <laughs> right. But in the future, if you when you upgrade, you're going to be forced to have a high efficiency one because that's all you can get now. Yeah. We'll see which comes first. <laughs> yeah, my- I know. There's a lot of reasons to feel guilty. We could all be doing more. But then again, we have to do what we can. You know, and we have to be realistic and certainly taking advantages of some of these rebates and incentives that are coming out. It's silly not to. So what's the latest thing that you're working on right now? Well, the topic of resilience, I guess. (laughs) I mean, if I write another book, it's going to have something to do with resilience and the idea that, you know, much overused word, but from the perspective I'm looking at it is, There's so many people doing really wonderful things right now. We don't always hear about it. We always hear the bad news and this and that, right? But there are people working in their communities at every level on this planet, all across the planet, doing wonderful things. 
in a situation that seems to be getting more dire and more dark. So how do we how do we hold on to our resilience? How do we hold on to our light in the midst of such a difficult time? Because that's what we need to hold on to. And one of the books I'm reading right now is called The Future We Choose, which is a stubborn optimist guide to the climate crisis by Christina Figueres and Tom Rivett-Karnak, who put together the climate change accords at the UN, the first ones. So how did they hold on to optimism in such a difficult time and bring all these countries together? I mean, I think there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from just what other people are doing right now and how they're holding onto that sense of optimism right now. So I want to kind of try to address that if I can. (laughs) And from reading your book, it sounds like trees are very optimistic in the way, you know, when they're dying and suffering, they'll still, and especially when they're dying, they will just give away their own resources to the other trees and, and plants around them. I think that's just a beautiful scientific story, right? Of how they will give all of their resources to their neighbors, how they will even give them to trees of other species, how they are way beyond individual thinking in their approach and how they utilize the resources that they have. That's just a wonderful example. And you actually call trees a super species. Well, don't you think they are? I mean, we wouldn't have a functional planet if it wasn't for trees. We wouldn't have anything to eat if it wasn't for trees. We wouldn't have anything to build our homes out of if it wasn't for trees. I think that's pretty super. And the way they model this incredibly beautiful, altruistic, and cooperative, and highly socially intelligent behavior. I guess that's why I think of them as the new archetype that which is a very old archetype, right? The tree archetype is found in almost every culture around the world. So maybe we need to re-embrace our tree consciousness. (laughs) Right. And actually become more like trees. That's the idea. (laughs) (laughs) But I do want to stress that my book is a very documented, scientifically documented piece of writing. But I think within it, we can see the emergence of a larger story. Yeah. And again, the the title of the book is Why Can't We Be More Like Trees? The Ancient Masters of Cooperation, Kindness, and Healing by my guest, Judith Polich. And it's been great to talk with you. And I really enjoyed the book. Thank you, Tony. I loved our discussion. And I look forward to seeing it online when it's out there. Thank you so much. In the meantime, be well and stay resilient and optimistic and strong. The same to you, my friend. Reasons to be cheerful, part three. Summer Buddy Holly, the working Holly, the Polly Miss Molly, and boats. 
Hammersmith Pally, the Bolshoi Bally, jump back in the alley, add nanny goats, 18 wheelers camels, Dominica camels, all other mammals plus equal boats, seeing Piccadilly, Fanny Smith and Willie, being rather silly and porridge oats, a bit of grin and bear it, a bit of come and share it, you're welcome, we can spare it, yellow socks, too short to be haughty, too nutty to be naughty, going on forty, no electric shots, the juice of the carrot, the smile of the parrot, a little drop of parrot, anything that works, help his own Scotty, days when I ain't spotty, sitting on the potty, curing small pots, reasons to be cheerful, Reasons to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful. One, two, three. Reasons to be cheerful. Part three. Health service classes, gigolos and brasses, round or skinny bottoms. Take him on to Paris, lighting up the chalice, wee Willie Harris. Band to Stephen Beeple, listening to Rico, Harpo Groucho Chico. Cheddar cheese and pickle, the Vincent Motorcycle, slap and tickle. Woody Allen Darling, Dimitri and Pasquale, bala 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 and below. Something nice to study, phoning up a buddy, being in my nutty. Saying okie dokie, sing along a smokey, coming out a chokey. John Coltrane Soprano, Eddie Celentano, Bona Carlino. Reasons to be cheerful, part three. Reasons to be cheerful, part three. Reasons to be cheerful, part three. Reasons to be cheerful. One, two, three. Reasons to be cheerful. You're listening to WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick. Yes, yes, dear, dear, perhaps next year, or maybe even never. In which... our planet from the perspective of space, certain things become undeniably clear. 
We keep trying to deal with issues such as global warming, deforestation, biodiversity loss as standalone issues, when in reality, they're just symptoms of the underlying root problem. And the problem is that we don't see ourselves as planetary. When I looked out the window of the International Space Station, I saw the paparazzi-like flashes of lightning storms. I saw dancing curtains of auroras that seemed so close, it was as if we could, we could reach out and touch them. And I saw the unbelievable thinness of our planet's atmosphere. In that moment, I was hit with the sobering realization that that paper-thin layer keeps every living thing on our planet alive. I saw an iridescent biosphere teeming with life. I didn't see the economy. But since our human-made systems treat everything, including the very life support systems of our planet, as the wholly owned subsidiary of the global economy, it's obvious from the vantage point of space that we're living a lie. We need to move from thinking economy, society, planet to planet, society, economy. That's when we're going to continue our evolutionary process. I'm Ron Guerin. I'm a former NASA astronaut and former combat fighter pilot and the author of Floating in Darkness, A Journey of Evolution. We are all, as a species, to some extent, floating in darkness. And I use Plato's allegory of the cave to illustrate how a lot of times we think we know the whole picture, when in reality we see a very, very small representation. We don't see the actual picture that will allow us to solve a lot of the problems that we face. And we're paying a really high price right now as a civilization. This is a really, really dark time. And part of the reason why we're not solving the problems is because we don't have the right perspective. We're not addressing things in the reality of the situation that they exist. And I think that's one of the reasons why we need to leave the cave. We need to get out of the darkness. A lot of astronauts who go to space come back and they, they feel that there has been some sort of transformation. And a term was coined back in the 80s called the overview effect. And the overview effect describes the shift that astronauts have when they see the planet hanging in the blackness of space. There's this light bulb that pops up where they realize how interconnected and interdependent we all are. A little over 50 years ago, humanity as a whole had a collective out-of-body experience on Christmas Eve, 1968, the crew of Apollo 8 came out from behind the far side of the moon on their fourth orbit. They took a famous color photograph, and that photo is called Earthrise. Earthrise is the first color photograph to see the whole planet hanging in the blackness of space and the first to capture that for the rest of us. And this image revolutionized how we see the world, how we see ourselves. There is no such thing as them. There's only us. And precisely one year before the Apollo 8 astronauts were hurtling through space on their, on their journey to the moon, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave a Christmas sermon on peace. And I believe that that sermon really gives words to, to what Earthrise evoked. Dr. King said, As nations and individuals, we are interdependent. We're not going to have peace on Earth until we recognize the basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality. Now, the interrelated structure of all reality, that's not a cliche, that's not a philosophy, that's the, that's the reality of the world that we live in, that's fact. That what happens to one directly affects all of us indirectly, that we are all inextricably linked together in this fabric of life that we call Earth. 
So if the overview effect is that light bulb that pops on, is the awareness of our interconnected, interdependent nature, the orbital perspective, which is the title of my first book, is what you do with that awareness. The orbital perspective is the call to action. It's a sense of injustice that we see when we see the sobering contradiction between the indescribable beauty of our planet and the unfortunate realities of life on our planet for a significant number of the inhabitants. One of the things that I realized during my time in space is that we're not from Earth, we're of Earth. And to take that one step further, is that we're not in the universe, we are the universe. We are the universe becoming conscious of itself. A lot of what we're talking about doesn't require going to space to realize. You don't have to be in orbit to have the or orbital perspective. And one of the tools that we can use is a term that I borrowed from cinematography called a dolly zoom. And what a dolly zoom is, is where the camera is rolled back or dollied back at the same rate as the lens is zoomed in and it was used in Jaws and Vertigo and many other films. And what the filmmakers use that technique for is to give altitude to a scene as the, the foreground stays the same and the background stretches. But we could also apply that term to the challenges that we face. If we dolly zoom a situation, that means that we zoom out to the widest geographical area we possibly can, ideally the entire planet. But as we zoom out to that big picture, we don't lose focus on the worm's eye details on the ground. We don't zoom out to the point where people become numbers on a spreadsheet or a workforce or a voting block or a consumer block. They maintain their value as, as valued members of our human society. There's also a temporal aspect to this. We need to zoom out to the longest time frame possible, ideally multi-generational, but in the process we can't lose sight of the short term. The last part of a dolly zoom is to see things from different perspectives, and so we understand the depth of our problem, and that makes our solutions that much more lasting and that much more uh, effective. You have an incredibly powerful position to affect real change in the world. What I try and do is to live a constant dolly zoomed life. <laughs> I wake up every morning in my bed, but I also wake up on a planet. In the long term, I'm very optimistic because I do see quite clearly a blossoming unity spreading across our planet, a blossoming awareness of our interdependent nature. That awareness will eventually reach critical mass, and when it reaches critical mass, then we'll be able to solve the problems facing our planet and it should give us courage during these dark times to keep doing what we know to be right and to not give up hope because we are going to see the dawn. And when we can evolve beyond a two-dimensional us-versus-them mindset and embrace the true multi-dimensional reality of the universe that we live in, that's when we're going to no longer be floating in darkness. We're going to leave the cave. And it's a future that we would all want to be a part of. That's our true calling.
That's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com slash WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. 